I've been working on this project for the past month, trying to understand a few things about for-profit colleges, why they exist, why someone would want to attend one, how they make money. But one big question remains. Over the years, we keep hearing stories about some of these schools and what they have done. And they've done some pretty shady things. Why haven't we found a way to stop them? Why can't we just tear down all the bad schools or the bad trees with the bad apples and just start afresh? This is Illegal Tender Season 7. I'm Arti Swaminathan. It occurred to me that the reason why these schools were doing these shady, fraudulent things was due to a simple case of misaligned incentives. Basically, the system is set up in such a way that it seems almost too easy to extract money from these students. I thought that a fix was possible if it came from the government, which would come down on these schools and discourage this bad behavior. But what I learned was that even if you try as hard as you can to expose these bad actors, it's not that the entire apple orchard was poisoned. The entire plumbing system was compromised. Meet David Halprin. David wears many hats. Among other things, he's a lawyer, an advocate for many issues from climate change to higher education, and was at one point a speechwriter to former President Bill Clinton. David's also fascinated by this world of for-profit colleges. So much that he's kept a blog called republicreport.org to chronicle some of the events that go on in this world. Where is all this energy coming from? Just from the connections I had with people, the students who were wronged, and the honest, decent, hardworking employees who just wanted to have a a career and support their families who got caught up in basically uh, being complicit in crimes. And their courage in coming forward. And just the stories of the students who, you know, served our country in the military or came here, you know, as, as an immigrant or struggling to raise children and, and, and feed them. And knowing that there are people out there who are privileged, who, who basically are rich and have three houses and boats and all these other things that I pulled off their Facebook pages to document because they scammed hardworking, honest, decent people. It's just too sad a story. It's just too powerful a narrative. And that then they use Washington to to protect their privileged and corrupt position and that they can buy politicians, Democrat and Republican alike, and get away with it. David's one of the two people I've met on this reporting journey who has this obsession to get to this destination. He's a man with a mission. I've been working in Washington for more than 30 years now, and I've worked on a whole range of issues. I started out interested in national security and foreign policy and nuclear weapons policy. I worked for a nonprofit that did that. I worked for um, the Senate Intelligence Committee, which deals with a lot of national security related issues and some domestic issues. Then went to the White House to be a speechwriter for President Clinton, where I worked on foreign policy. And then I worked at the Center for American Progress, where I built their youth uh, program, which is now called Generation Progress. 
And that's where I first learned about this issue of for-profit higher education. And when I left CAP after eight years, I was so profoundly concerned about the corruption in this issue and all the harm it causes to students and the ripoff for taxpayers that I decided I was going back to being on my own and being an advocate and an advisor to organizations, that this was the one issue I would take with me and not give up until we really, really uh, drove all the bad actors out of this industry. Over the past few years, David's received a ton of unsolicited emails from former students, former recruiters, all wanting to tell their story to a man whom they knew would listen. I had a woman call me from the, what was the notorious Corinthian colleges that shut down during the Obama administration. One of the worst chains, but not the only bad chain. And Everest College was one of the brands that Corinthian colleges had. And a woman called me up named Lori McConnell. She was a librarian out in California, Ontario, California, and said she had a student that she was trying to tutor and she was heartbroken because he was uh, seriously intellectually disabled. And I actually spoke with him and he was signed up for the criminal justice program at Everest College because he wanted to be a police officer. And there was no chance he was ever going to be hired as a police officer but they enrolled him in the program anyway. And there's just so many examples of that, of, of, of people who are uh, intellectually disabled. And the schools will, if you, you know, press them, because I did, they say, oh, well, we're required to, we can't discriminate. Well, that's not what the law says. The law says the person is otherwise able to, you know, pursue the program, then you can't discriminate against them. But there was an example of another school I wrote about recently, Florida Career College, a horrible, horrible place where they recruit students with by offering homeless people hot dogs in parking lots. And they also tell many of the students, again, that they're there for a job rather than education. And that school had admitted a student to the dental assisting program who was legally blind and couldn't see in the mouths of patients in, in a way that would allow her to, to uh, perform the duties of a dental assistant. And they, they signed her up anyway. They also signed up a lot of people who had felony convictions. Now, people with felony convictions deserve a chance in education. But there are fields that they are not, the people with a felony conviction, either by law or by practice, won't be hired in. Uh, but they still enrolled them in these programs to train for those careers, knowing they'd never get the job. And those are the kind of disgraceful things that these schools do, because recruiters basically have a quota. They know they're going to get fired if they don't sign up a certain number of people. And they're just constantly being pressed. And when you have those incentives, you sign up people knowing that the programs are not going to help them. That word, incentive. Every time I hear that word, I feel a weird surge of energy because I knew I was going in the right direction in figuring out the mystery of why these colleges last for so long. Remember Alex, the film director from the previous episodes? He used that word too. There are so many students out there that are just sitting and, and internalizing this, former students, and they have no one to speak to. And I think their stories, des- their voices deserve to be heard. And so it's just like for an industry to really treat them as nothing more than dollar signs. And I think that speaks to the incentive structure of the system itself. It's just, it's a, it's a machine designed from the ground up to prey on students, 
to churn and burn through them and to leave them with nothing. It seemed to me at this point, this word incentive is the problem. That perhaps the entire system that exists today was created to incentivize this sort of bad behavior. In other words, these schools weren't inherently evil. There were just too many temptations that pushed them to become evil. There was a genuine need for higher education, for non-traditional students, like Trace Erden told us in episode 2. But the problem was that these schools attempted to access more and more government money by simply increasing their headcounts. So the question is then this, why can't we just cut them off? I had worked in the Clinton administration and before that for a senator and had launched a higher education policy organization. And I think just because of all of that experience, I was contacted to to help with the transition after Obama won the presidency. And my intention at the time, I, I volunteered, took vacation from work and spent time in Washington, D.C., just helping to prepare for the next administration. And then the the new Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, who had been nominated at that point, but not yet confirmed, asked whether I would be willing to stay on. And I said, I, we're not for the long term. I said, you know, I, I, I'll talk to my wife about it and see what we can figure out. This is Bob Scheiman. In 2009, Bob became the Deputy Undersecretary for Higher Education Policy at the Department of Education. If David is the activist slash blogger who is determined to weed out the bad actors... Bob's the characteristically calm, collected, but highly persuasive government official who's also on the same mission. So after Bob stepped foot in D.C., he quickly realized that there was a lot of work to be done. We had, much like, much like right now, we had a, a, an economy that was going into the tank and we had to figure out how to, how to manage the student loan program and how to make sure that college and universities were treating students well, and all while transferring government from from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. So it it was drinking from a fire hose. One of the things that has come into your crosshairs, the for-profit schools, right? Yes, right. All of them. What was, can you think back to your first encounter? Some people say it was a TV ad. Some people say it was, you know, just a campus that they went past in a car or something like that. What was your first encounter with that term or that type of school? I would say it really was when I joined the staff for Senator Paul Simon from Illinois in 1989. This was my first job as a Capitol Hill staff member. And there were some college owners coming to the office and they were considered friends of Senator Simon. They had donated to his campaign and they were making the case that they were doing a good job serving low-income students and wanted to maintain access to to money for money for college. A few months later, there was a Senate investigations committee that was looking into 
issues that had been raised about some of the very same colleges that had been coming to Senator Simon for for help. And it was eye-opening when I realized that, you know, maybe naively that, wow, you know, somebody somebody may be coming into the office uh, claiming that they're doing doing good things for students. But in fact, this is just a money machine for them and, and the students are not being well served. And that was really my first just kind of introduction to the to the industry. And, you know, I, I know it's not it doesn't always go bad, but I have seen how it can go bad. This money machine soon became a passion for Bob. He had spent years on this issue and knows all about it. So I asked him that one question that was still bugging me. It's just interesting to me, you know, why these schools are so hungry for, uh, I guess in the documentary talked about a pain funnel to put through single moms, minorities. I mean, why go after these students? Is it because they're, I mean, underserved is the easy answer for it, but there's also a lot of resistance, right, to actually get them to the location I read about recruiters driving people to cosmetology schools to enroll them. It's just, it, I, I'm just struggling to find a, right. a, a response to that. Like, why hasn't the market introduced incentives to iron this out? Yeah. I mean, you know, the reason that they are the target is that's where the money is. And it's, and it's usually federal money, uh, federal student loan money and and grant money. And, those the especially older adult students, you know, the 20, 25 year old not living with parents, not in school, they don't have access to people who are who will help them identify other options. So they are very vulnerable to someone who kind of poses as an advisor and is helping them figure out this next step in their life. Like they know they need to make some change in their life. They feel that way. And, and they have this advisor. It feels like to them, it feels like the right step to take. And I think that a lot of people can feel judgmental about that, about that, like they should have known, but most people have actually experienced things where they kind of have gotten a bit suckered and, and, you know, it, it, that's that's what's happening in these kinds of situations. These incentives exist and will continue to exist, it seems, because of one simple reason. Demand. With your education, Shepherd, guiding you to a better life, to make more money, to become better qualified, it's hard to take a step back and question if it's just too good to be true. Because no one's obliged to stop you from enrolling. It's essentially none of their business. The market lets you make your decisions. And if you make a wrong decision, you are on the hook. You're the one being punished for it. But there is a way to stop these schools. It just hasn't worked perfectly, but it has stopped the really bad schools. It's when the government steps in. I want to go back to your time during the Obama administration, you were the champion of making life difficult for for-profit colleges. That's what someone like Trace Erden would say. But you came up with the gainful employment rule, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the thinking behind designing 
certain ways to make sure that for-profit colleges are actually doing what they're supposed to do? Sure. Yeah, we wanted to to change that dynamic where schools that are just following the bottom line will be driven in the wrong direction. That that is clearly what has happened with a lot of the the schools that have turned predatory, and we wanted to change the change the incentive, and we wanted to do it in a way that was that was program based, meaning we weren't threatening to we wouldn't be threatening to shut down schools. We'd be telling them what uh, what educational programs is the federal government willing to continue funding in the future and those should be the programs where the amount of money that people are earning is enough to repay the loans that they are taking uh, that they are taking out so that was really the concept behind the gainful employment rule where it said if your program consistently is requiring people to borrow far more than they than than can comfortably repay loans for the majority not even everybody so it's just for more than half of the students so it was a pretty low standard you could have a lot you could have 40% of the students who are suffering under crippling debt and you could still continue but the pushback was swift the for-profit college industry decided to turn this into a claim that they were being um horribly and unfairly attacked and being totally driven out of business when in fact many of the largest schools had very few if any programs that were that that were violating any schools that did it was just some of their programs not all of their programs it w- it was not about nor would it have actually driven schools out of business it was focused on steering them to to put money into to put money and to enroll students in the programs that were doing that they could demonstrate were doing well by students but they went after the rule took it to court fought it politically and and now it's it has been rescinded there are lawsuits so maybe it will come back but at this point it's been rescinded by by this administration since the trump administration scaled back that rule A bunch of Democratic state attorneys general have sued Betsy DeVos and her education department trying to bring the old Obama rules back. But the problem is we, as in you, me, Bob and David and everyone else in higher education, are now stuck in a very messy situation. Because Betsy didn't just repeal that one rule. Her agency had undone a lot more. One of those rules particularly affected Matt from episode 1. It's called the borrower defense to repayment. This rule basically comes from existing regulation in the 1990s that allowed people like Matt who had his school shut down get some debt relief. Matt's application as far as I know is still pending because the divorce run department education has introduced some restrictions on how exactly these claims work. Some say that it's meant to make it harder for students to apply so that some of these people are not motivated to file applications even if they weren't defrauded. Let's just take a sidebar here. I want to tell you about a quirky part of the higher education system that's actually a really important pillar that holds it up. The creditors Accreditors are essentially entities that are 
private, not the government, that review colleges, universities, and make sure they provide quality education. Colleges like NYU, which I attended, or others like Harvard and Purdue, are all accredited by these non-government bodies. Because only after a school is accredited and is authorized by the state or by the education department, its students can take out student loans. Without that rubber stamp, students at that university cannot take any federal loans, like Trump University. The issue here is that sometimes, these accreditors, who are tasked with essentially policing shady for-profit colleges, miss the red flags. You would think accreditors have a duty now more than ever to go and check all these people, but then they haven't been that great. But who accredits the accreditors? Is there a system at all of oversight? The oversight of accreditors is the U.S. Department of Education, which has not been very reliable in this administration. The, the Secretary of Education basically determines whether an accrediting agency can be is reliable as an authority on the the quality of colleges, and I'd say it's been that system has been better than nothing. There certainly are some very sketchy schools that are unaccredited and we'd not want them in in the program but once a school gets accredited it's really difficult even when accreditors do try to cut them off the schools file lawsuits and end up maintaining their access to to federal aid and that is usually the for-profits that that ga- engage in some some pretty aggressive tactics to to remain in business. In 2017, the Center for American Progress revealed an interesting wrinkle to the story. Before she became secretary, Betsy had listed some investments in her ethics paperwork that revealed ties to a for-profit college operator. And in July, House Democrats uncovered a trove of documents that suggested an even more troubling situation. Even though accreditors were supposed to be this independent body, it seemed like one of them may have been pressured by an aide to Betsy to bend to a school's will. Here's the story. This school, Dream Center Education Holdings, had bought more than 100 campuses from another school in 2018. This included the Art Institute of Colorado, the Illinois Art Institute, among others. But these two in particular had lost accreditation in the transfer. The Higher Learning Commission, which is the school's accreditor, said that it told Dream Center that these schools were not accredited anymore and they wouldn't be allowed to take out financial aid. But but Dream Center decided to tell its students and the public on its website that it was accredited. The idea was to provide certainty to thousands of students. But in the meantime, The government acted strangely and continued to let these schools take out federal funds even though the schools weren't even accredited and therefore shouldn't have been able to do so. So then the government and bear with me here decides to quote retroactively accredit the school. In other words, it just means that the school was given a free pass for having taken out federal aid even though it shouldn't have. This decision made by a senior official at the Department of Education has been the subject of intense scrutiny, probably made worse by the fact that she actually worked for a for-profit school prior to coming into this role. 
So in other words, it seems like Betsy DeVos and the people around her at the Department of Education may be incentivized to keep these schools accredited, either because they have some personal ties or financial ties to these for-profit schools. The House Democrats are pressing the department's inspector general to investigate. So maybe the entire Apple Orchard was, as Alex Shibanow said, poisoned. So what is the fix? How do we get, you know, people in, say, quote-unquote education deserts, low-income families, single moms, how do we get them to a proper college? Like, just uh, erase everything and build a new system. How would it right. look like? In uh, well, I think one thing that a new system, I think one thing that a new system needs is a, an advising system, a place that people can go to get neutral advice, advice that is not pegged to a particular college or university so that they can get some help figuring out is there a community, is there a low cost community college that would have some good, some good courses? Is it, am I the kind of person who, who would best in non-COVID times would do best with an on, with an in-person program as opposed to online? So I think that, that advising is key. Uh, I also think that involving states, a lot of the federal government is going straight to, federal government money goes straight to colleges when, in fact, many of our best, most accessible colleges and universities are uh, are state institutions and community colleges, and working with states to expand access to uh, our neediest populations and doing that in a in a more organized kind of kind of way, incentivizing states to reach those students rather rather than hoping that by sprinkling grant and loan money, it'll get to the right places. I purposely use the term advising for what students need rather than information, because I think part of the the problem is that once you start giving people data about student loans or loan repayment or graduation rates, they really don't have a way of interpreting what the data mean for them, which is why they're so drawn to someone who calls them and says, this is a good program for you. Um, they get and they, you know, end up enrolling in that program. It was that was not right for them. People need help figuring out what, like, if I'm interested in getting involved in healthcare, am I ready to enter a program? Enter a program to be a registered nurse? Should I be a medical assistant first? Should I, are there classes I need to take before that? Could I go and get a job as a medical assistant? And like, these are all questions that you need somebody who knows something about about the routes to jobs and who can ask you about, you know, when's the last time you took a biology class? How well did you do in that class? You know, things like that, that are really more of an academic advisor kind of role and not just all of that information is so specific to to me and my background that it would be hard for me to do it through an app or a or a website that just has like all of the information a bunch of information on it it would be overload and i would not know what to do with that information i've actually tried to do that you know sort of pose as somebody without a college degree trying to figure out how to get into healthcare 
and you get lost very quickly and you are hungry for someone to help you help you get through it, which is again, why you're so susceptible to someone who, who gets to know you a little bit and gives you a suggestion. And if that person works for the school that they're suggesting, there's the hat, that's where the hazard is. It's August 2020. We're in the middle of a pandemic. A lot of people are out of work and looking for a job. Some of them are considering going back to school. History tells us that conditions like these create the perfect environment for for for-profit schools to come in and offer these people a chance at a better life. We're already seeing some signs of a boom. One for-profit nursing school reported a 30% increase in new enrollments in its latest quarter. But how can the buyer beware and avoid enrolling in a school like Fast Train or even a Trump U? What seems to happen during recessions is because people are not working, they're looking for how can I improve my, how can I make myself more employable? So they are highly susceptible to someone who tells them, come and do this six-month training program or this two-year degree program. We have great connections to business. We have a strong placement, job placement program. And they enroll in those kinds of programs with the hope that it will get them a job. What happens on the school side of it is that the schools discover that if they say certain things, people are likely to enroll. And the more the school, the more hungry the school is for money, the further they will go to get people to enroll. And that's really what we saw in the last recession where schools were finding that, uh, boy, if we reach out to some of the most vulnerable populations and tell them that we have a, uh, that we have a job placement program, we can get them to enroll in a program where we actually don't have to pay very much to even provide the education. And then we have a whole lot of money that we can use to recruit even more students and grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And the next thing you know, we've got a billion dollar we have a billion dollar operation. Um, And that may sound like an exaggeration, but that is exactly what happened that in the early, in the first decade of of this century, you had schools that went from a few thousand students to 50, 60,000 student online operations. And especially when it's online, there's not really even a physical, there's no physical limit to the number of students that you can enroll. And the students can't tell that, that, the faculty member that's hired is is swamped with in terms of the number of students that they need to serve or that they're being paid very little and and you end up you know not getting the real attention that you need we have even seen many traditional universities like the University of Arizona go after one of these online schools to beef up their offerings since the coronavirus is essentially for students to stay at home and not be on campus. But ultimately, one thing's for sure. Virus, no virus, recession, boom times. 
This business of higher education, it's likely here to stay. Legal Tender is made by Yahoo Finance at our studios and homes in New York City. This episode was written and hosted by me, Arti Swaminathan. Illegal Tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Zuck. A special thank you to Bob Shireman, to David Halperin, and Alex Shibanau, and everyone else who came on this episode as well as this entire season for sharing your knowledge. If you enjoyed this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review it for the show. And until next time, thank you for listening to this season of Illegal Tender. Legal Tender.